Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Would you join me in prayer here this morning? Father, thank you for a great song and a great time of worship to lift our voices in unity. Thank you that we get to be reminded that you are with us, you abide with us in life and death, and that you will not abandon us, you will not forsaken us, that we are held securely, that you go before us, behind us, on top of us, around us, you enclose us, and uh, Lord, what a great what a great promise to consider as we engage your text. And now as we gather as your people to hear from you and your word, I pray that your spirit would, would open our eyes, allow our minds to understand, and our hearts to be ready to receive what your word has for us. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I would invite you this morning, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts. If this is your first Sunday, we're studying the book of Acts. We're going through it. Today we're going through two chapters in Acts. As I told you before, we transition out of here. Uh, we'll finish Acts. And so today we've got chapter 23 and chapter 24. And, uh, and, and this is just a wonderful account. And as you're turning there, let me just kind of set the table for what we'll be studying here this morning in these two wonderful chapters. Um, the book of Acts, as we've noted many times, really is the, is the outworking of the Great Commission. It's showing how the gospel went from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. It showed how God actually took them, took the apostles, and, 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 and how God with the church just moved from Jerusalem to, the, to Rome, to the far reaches of the world. It's an incredible process, how God did it, and that's what Acts shows us how he did it. And, and as we observe the stories, and as we read through Acts and we see these accounts, sometimes it's easy to feel a little disconnected from the stories. Sometimes you can look at these stories and say, wow, you know, that's amazing what God did there. I don't really understand it, but, you know, that's what God did there. And, and it's easy to kind of draw a distance between ourselves and what's going on there in Acts in terms of, of how God worked and the things that God did. And, and sometimes it, we can fill that gap. And there's a reason why there's a little bit of a gap we have when we read Acts. And I want to kind of explain this to you. I've been thinking about this all week. And, uh, and I realized something. Whenever we think about our lives, and we think about God working in our lives or things just happening in our lives, oftentimes the way we think about it is that we, we think about our lives and our experience in an orderly fashion. Now let me explain to you what I mean by that. Let's just say, this is just a made-up story, right? This is not going to happen tonight, but, but this is a, we're entering into fantasy land, okay, here on this illustration. Let's say tonight you're in your room, and you're getting ready to go to bed, and God appears. The smoke appears in your room. This fire appears in your room, and the voice of God thunders out from this smoke, and it says, you are going to preach the gospel to Congress, and then it disappears. And you go, okay, Wow. Okay, that's overwhelming. So now you would start thinking about that. And once you move past all the awe and the fear and the what would I say and, and all these kinds of things, you would begin to think about what that experience could look like preaching the gospel to Congress. You might envision yourself walking into the congressional chambers like the president on the State of the Union and walking in and standing up behind that podium and, and going, my fellow Americans, my fellow congressmen. And then you'd be thinking about what you would say at that moment. Or you might be thinking about uh, presidential, prayer uh, presidential prayer breakfast. That's a rough one. You might be thinking about that, and maybe God's going to put you before that prayer breakfast, and you are going to get a chance to, to preach the gospel there, and Congress will be seated there. Or, or maybe there'll be some special luncheon or some special meeting. However it is, your brain is going to be thinking from anywhere from a joint session of Congress down to some kind of meeting where you're going to be getting a chance to share the gospel. I guarantee none of you would fantasize about that experience this way. Well, I'm going to be at home one night watching television. And there's going to be a knock on my door. There'll be two FBI agents waiting to arrest me. Then they're going to bind me and throw me into a secret prison. While I'm in the prison, I'm going to be beaten severely. 
Then I'm going to be pulled out onto an illegal trial that will be held top secret because of national security reasons. And then eventually I'll be brought in an orange jumpsuit with handcuffs bound in front of a congressional hearing where I'm having to actually give credence to some kind of charge that was false and wrong. And it's in that moment I'll get a chance to share the gospel. We don't think that way. Right? Like that thought doesn't go through my like, tomorrow I might get arrested. And I might get handcuffs put on me. I might get thrown in prison. Or, or tomorrow I might get fired from my job and then accused of theft and then thrown in jail. And maybe there I'll get to preach the gospel to the police chief. Right? We don't dream that way. We dream orderly. We dream about joint sessions of Congress. We, right? and, and then when reality shows up and life is thrown into chaos... We're all out of whack, right? We're completely out of whack because, you see, in our thought, the normal path of life should be orderly, that God's plan will clearly work out orderly. Like, like tomorrow, whatever your agenda is, should click off in the order that you put it on the piece of paper tonight. And then when it doesn't, you go, oh my God, where are you? Why did you bring this to me? I thought you loved me. But the problem is, we miss something. God uses the chaos. God uses the mess. God's plan to have Paul preach to the Romans involves an illegal arrest, a kangaroo court, and abuse. He gets caught in a political system that isn't fair. And he's stuck in a loop that just won't end. That sounds more like real life, doesn't it? Right? The problems that won't go away, the issues that won't go away. And yet, all throughout Acts, we see God, as he's expanding the gospel to the nations, we see him using the mess, using the chaos, using the craziness. Just every step of the way. And what we have to do as Christians as we're engaging the book of Acts is to stop and realize, yeah, I, I'm kind of addicted to the normalcy of life. I'm kind of addicted to the order. I'm, I'm kind of addicted to my agenda. I'm kind of addicted to the way things I want, I want them to go this way. And if they don't go this way, then God, where are you? God, why did you allow this? And God... Through the book of Acts, we see him telling Paul, no, this is actually the plan. Your arrest is not plan B. Your arrest, your abuse, your trial, this kangaroo court, and all of this is actually the plan that I created before the foundations of the world. And we go, okay, now I see why Paul says, the wisdom of God seems foolish to man. Now I see that disconnect. And so as we engage this account today, we're going to see confusion. We're going to see a kangaroo court. And in the middle of that, we're going to see God telling Paul, have courage, I'm in control. This is plan A, have courage. And I want you to see this today because I really do believe that if we're going to understand the mission, if we're going to understand how God moves, we're going to understand how God takes his truth to the nations, if we're going to understand how to join and be part of God's expansion in the world and, and, the, and, and the message of the gospel that is continuing on past the book of Acts to all nations until the end of the age, we've got to understand that God works in the mess, that God uses the confusion. And that, and that that isn't a plan B. And that, and that we shouldn't be fighting to get back to the plan A. And that we should stop and say, okay, God, you use this. So let's jump in it. Let's be all in. I want you to see that today. So let's begin. We've got a lot to cover. Let's look at this confusion that's here. It begins, this whole situation, I call it confusion because it is. The whole thing is just kind of unfolding strangely. Paul has been arrested by the Romans. The Romans figured out that he was a, a Roman citizen of high standing and stature. And so after this arrest, and he was arrested for uh, 
uh, a crime he didn't commit. He, they arrested him for uh, bringing a Gentile into the temple, which he didn't do, and they, they think that he's speaking against the law, and, and all these kinds of crazy things. The Jews are, are mad at him, and, and so now the Roman government is, wants to kind of get their hands away from the situation, so they're, they're throwing Paul back to the Jewish leadership, and they're going to now have a trial, a small little Jewish trial here, and this whole trial is marked with confusion. Just look at, look at what happens. And what I like about this story is this is basically how life goes. Misunderstanding, confusion, craziness, all that's here. Look at, look at what happens. And so Paul now has been brought by the Romans back to the Jewish council. And here we are in Acts 23, verse 1. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, oh, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written... You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now you go, what happened there? Okay, so Paul's brought on trial. First thing he says is he says, I have a clear conscience before God, and this angers the high priest. And it angers the high priest because the high priest thinks Paul is saying, I have obeyed every law, I'm perfect. Paul is not saying that. What Paul is saying is that you're accusing me of being a lawbreaker. I'm telling you my passion has been to follow the law. That's all I'm telling you. I am not one trying to create a whole new religion here. Everything that I have done, even before I knew Jesus, I was trying to follow the law. That's all. I have a clear conscience. I don't think he... That's all. It's just a simple statement, guys. I'm not living against the law. You think I am, but I'm not. The high priest thinks it's arrogant, so he orders Paul to be hit. Okay, now, you know, striking him. Not, Not kind of like, you know, somebody going, hey, stop it. Right? I mean... Soldier, or, you know, a guard, whacking him across the face. Must have hurt badly. Paul is saying, how in the world, you hypocrite, could you order me to be struck? That's what the whitewash means, calling him a hypocrite. You pretend like you're, you're trying me because I break the law, and yet you violate the law? Leviticus 19.15 says one Jew is not allowed to strike another Jew. So you're telling me that you're trying to you know, hold me accountable to the law, and yet you break Leviticus 19? God's going to strike you, you hypocrite. Right? Paul just, he gets fiery at this moment. All right? Remember, there's, there's Romans in the room here, and, and, and Paul wants to make sure that everything is seen for what it is. All right? this, this, is this isn't a good trial. Of course, somebody next to Paul says, How dare you talk to the high priest this way? And Paul goes, oh, did not know he was the high priest. Okay, so so the high priest would change from time to time. And in this case, Paul has no idea he's speaking to the high priest, which is kind of the head of all the priests. He has the significant role in Israel. And Paul realizes at that moment, if he had known it was the high priest, he would have never spoke to him in that manner. Exodus 22.8 says that your leaders are to be respected. Had Paul known he had that position, he would have not spoken to him in that manner. I, I think of when I, when I always read this account, I always think about in the Air Force. When we were in training in the Air Force, they would always tell you, you know, respect the, the rank, not the man. Sometimes you have some officers, I was an enlisted man, so some officers would come to you and they would be, you know, kind of jerks. And, and sometimes it'd be easy to kind of go, man, I don't want to do what this guy says. He's a jerk. And they would say, you know what, if he's got... Rank on his shoulders, you respect the rank, you respect the position. God lays out, somebody has a position of authority, they deserve respect by nature of that position. And Paul's saying, you know what, even though this guy is a whitewashed person, even though he's a hypocrite, even though he's violating the law of God, I would have shown him respect if I would known he was a high priest. I would not have done that. And so he apologizes. He apologizes. Okay? fighting off like a parent lesson right now. 
you know, to kids and that kind of thing, but we'll just leave that for another day. That's Wednesday night's message. No, joke. <laughs> Let's keep going. Verse 6. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and another Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. It's with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisee party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. That's wild. What if the spirit or an angel had spoken to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Okay, summary statement. Paul launched a hand grenade in the room. Okay. <laughs> he notices that there's Pharisees and Sadducees. Pharisees says he's two, two different sects within the uh, Jewish uh, system. The Pharisees were the conservative ones. They held to the law. Their whole belief was we got to preach the Bible, hold to the laws of the Bible. This is it. They didn't believe that you should go to the temple and worship, not because they were against the temple, but because a Gentile helped build the temple, and therefore it was defiled. They were purists. And so they only worshipped in the synagogues. The Sadducees were a little different. They focused more on temple worship, and they, they pushed aside the scriptures a little more. They were living in the here and the now. They didn't believe that, you would be that there was a resurrection after you died. They didn't believe in a spiritual plane. They just believed in a, in a worship, kind of you're living now, kind of in the moment. Sadducees, the Pharisees definitely believed that you would die, that there was, a, there was a spiritual world. And these two groups never got along. There's only one other time in the Bible where you see Pharisees and Sadducees in a room together, and it's when they were trying to kill Jesus. Other than that, these two were just polar opposites. Polar opposites. Paul is in the room, and the first thing he does is he says, I am a Pharisee. My dad was a Pharisee. I hold to the law of God, committed to it, and I want to tell you the reason why I'm here. The reason why I'm here is because I believe that God rose Jesus from the dead, raised him from the dead. I believe that. I'm here because of the resurrection of Jesus. Makes that statement, kaboom, kaboom. Pharisees and Sadducees start arguing with each other. There is no resurrection. Yes, there is. No, there isn't. And they just start tearing each other apart. And eventually some Pharisees start going, well, wait a minute. Paul's not that bad. we got an ally over here. Right? Let's switch right away. We will go from trying to arrest this guy to now he's an ally. And all of a sudden, the real nature of these people are seen. First thing that happens, Paul gets a chance to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus, which is a great thing, gospel moment. Second thing that happens, though, is that, that Paul is now able to put on the table that the issue here is theological. Who's around the room? Roman leadership are around the room. Paul's being accused of leading a group of people into rebellion that are going to create dissension in Rome, and, 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 and Paul is saying the issue here has nothing to do with that. The issue here is it's a theological issue. I believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, and therefore I am following his commission. That's the issue on the table, period. And so now the issue is exposed, which this becomes important later. And then what you get to see once it's exposed is that Paul is not stirring up dissension. The dissension was in their hearts. Because all he does is make a statement and boom. What do you see? Rage and anger and all of that. They're trying to say Paul is messing with Israel and creating all this anger. No, the anger is in you guys. Look, I mentioned the resurrection. You guys are ready to tear each other apart. Not only that, some of you are willing to join me all of a sudden just so that we can attack these guys. You guys are the problem. You guys have the anger problem. You guys are stirring up dissension. You see how all of it's being revealed, and it is not... Uh, I should say, the Roman government is catching it. They're picking up on what's going on. They see that this thing's crazy. So they pull Paul out. Now, if you were Paul at this moment, I want to ask you a question. Now that you're, you're pulled out, you don't, know, you don't have the book of Acts to tell you what's going to happen in your life, right? So all you have is you're right now 
being pulled out. Pharisees and Sadducees are clawing at each other. The Roman government thinks this thing's really nasty. We're going to pull you out of here. We're going to throw you back in a barracks. Would you kind of feel like, God, uh, I'm not tracking with this plan here. The Romans don't want me, and the Jews want to kill me. Now they want to kill each other, and this plan seems to be going nowhere. Be easy to feel that way, wouldn't it? It would be easy to feel that way. Just for a moment, consider Paul at this exact point in time. How would he be feeling? I think I understand it because I have been in a lot less intense situations than this and have felt really discouraged by them, right? I have. I've been in a lot less situations and feeling like I'm in a vortex that's going nowhere and it's not ending and I can't get out of this thing. And you can sit there and go, okay, God, why are you allowing this thing? If you're there, why wouldn't you kind of like just lance this boil and let's get rolling here? Sorry, that was a bad illustration. That's what I say, and it just shouldn't have come out now. Sorry. <laughs> Sometimes that's what I say. When I feel that way, let's just get some relief. Let's get out of here. You could feel that way. Well, this is what leads us to our second point, the courage. There's courage that's needed at this moment. Paul appears to be stuck. Romans are, 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 are in, in neutral. Israel's in neutral. He's arrested. People want to kill him. No one seems to be taking the lead anywhere. Everything seems to be going crazy. Everybody's got a hands-off, hands-on this. The Romans are afraid. They don't want to do anything wrong. The Jews are just angry. They want to kill him. It seems like it's going nowhere. And then God steps in. God steps in. And he gives him some courage. Look at verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him. Isn't that powerful picture? Stood by him, came right in his presence and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must, don't let that word pass you by, you must testify also in Rome. This is a, a, movement, a, a movement towards him. Right? Luke has given us an experience. The presence of God came into his room. And he said, take courage. Take courage is, it sounds kind of uh, like, a, like a charge, like if we we're all going into battle. Take courage! Today's our day! And we think about it like in a movie sense. But it actually, literally, means to lift your heart. Lift your heart. Pull it up. It's what you say to somebody who's really down who's really in a state of despair. I could imagine Paul at this moment how he must be feeling. God says you're going to go preach the gospel in Rome. He knows things are going to be bad. He knows he's going to be killed. But man, this thing's just going nowhere. And it doesn't even look like he could get to Rome at this stage because the Romans are hands-off. They want to be hands-off on him. And the Jews are just acting crazy. So... Now you're stuck. Do you want to be living in a Roman army barracks in Jerusalem? Trapped inside with mobs trying to kill you on the outside and, and, and Roman government who are, who are too scared to move? And God comes and says, take courage. Just as you talked about the resurrection in Jerusalem, you will, you must. It is going to happen, certainty. You will do this in Rome. Take courage. I believe that Paul believed that. And, and, and the reason why I say I believe Paul believed it is because now, as we move into the third point, the court case, and as we begin to move through what happens, we'll see Paul remaining faithful in the midst of this. Okay? So let's look here at our third point, the court case here. Look at verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink, until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine the case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Okay, so, just a little word smith in here for you for a second the word oath if you were to translate that word oath 
you, this is the word you use to translate it. You translate it as anathema. Most people don't know that. It actually means curse. The word oath actually means a curse. When you speak an oath, you're speaking a curse upon yourself. That's really what an oath is. So, for example, even in our court system, you know, if I'm going to testify in court, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. When I make that oath, I'm not just saying, I promise to do my best to tell the truth. Theoretically, an oath is saying, you can throw me in jail if I'm not telling the truth. You can curse me. You can condemn me. And if I prove to perjure myself on the stand, they will throw me in jail, or they can throw me in jail. An oath means, God curse me if I do not do what I'm saying I'm going to do. Curse me. Forty Jews, not even leaders, took an oath. Their oath was, we will starve to death. We'll starve to death if we don't kill Paul. It's a pretty intense oath. So they set up a plan to ambush Paul. Right? You saw the plan in there. Simple plan. Call Paul down. We'll ambush him, and we will destroy him. Now let's see how this plan plays itself out. Look at verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea and at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius listens to his excellency, the governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about a question of their law. See, he got it. But charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. Now, here's an interesting thing. No one would have ever dreamed about the fact that the the way God was going to get... God's plan, I should say, to get Paul to the next layer of the Roman government was to have 40 people try to kill Paul. Again, we don't think in those kind of terms, right? I want to share the gospel with my cousin in Colorado. Maybe someone will get a plot to try to kill me, and I'll have to escape in the middle of the night. That would be a great way to share We don't dream that way. But God uses the mess. God uses the mess. So this is what happens. So, But notice what happens. First thing you've got is Paul's nephew. God also is on top of this situation. He's not behind it. He's not standing back. These 40 people don't control the world. The mess doesn't control the world. God controls the mess. God uses the mess. The mess is not in control. So the right man is right here in the right place, isn't he? Paul's nephew. And now God has the right man in the right place. His nephew sounds the alarm. The commander is there. This is the right guy with the right authority. He's there. And the right man in the right place goes to the right guy with the right authority. And what happens? He advocates for Paul. Not only that, he sees it clearly. God has allowed this Roman leader to get it. This is an inside baseball argument. It's about their law. It's nothing to do with the Roman law. But they're also bent out of shape. We've got to get some resolution to this. And because his life is threatened, Felix, I need you to take over. So notice what happens in verse 31. 
So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul, brought him by the night to Antipatris, and on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what providence he was from, and he learned that he was from Cilicia, and he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. What does that mean? That's Herod's palace. Herod had a palace in this area. Because Paul was from Tarshish, he was a man of reputation, and the Roman government is giving him respect. And they're allowing him to be placed in a palace. Pretty amazing situation. And he says, all right, once all the accusers come, we'll sort this thing out. Very interesting. Now, we go into chapter 24. And as we move into chapter 24, we now see how this court case unfolds. And this is pretty amazing because God is in complete control of everything. And God is going to use the Roman government to protect Paul from the craziness that's going on and also allow Paul to be brought into the right channels. God's not allowing the craziness to go away because if the craziness went away, the Romans would let Paul go. It's the craziness that keeps him locked up. But they see it for what it is. They get it. And so it's the craziness that that keeps moving him through the system to where he could start moving up the chain and share the gospel with more and more people of authority. God's using the mess. He's using the mess. Look at chapter 24. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and spokesmen, one Tertullius. They laid before the governor the case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullius began to accuse him. By the way, I just want you to know, Tertullius is a a lawyer. He could possibly be a Gentile lawyer, not totally certain. That name could go either way. No one really knows who he is. Some believe he was a, a Gentile lawyer. Other believe he was a Jewish lawyer. Uh, but now he's, he's representing the Jews. I believe, as we'll see in a minute, he's a Gentile lawyer, just the way the, the text unfolds. And he is now speaking uh, on behalf of the Jews. And, and, and I just want you to see the lies, right? This is just too much honey coming out of this guy's mouth here. Look at this. Okay, so verse 2, he says, Since through you we enjoy much peace... And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with gratitude. (laughs) Yeah, like the Jews are going, we just love the Roman government. We are just in love with you, right? I mean, like, lying. Like, they hate them. They they want to throw the Romans out. They just had a giant coup attempt just a few years before. Oh, all of your reforms are just so well-loved, right? Sorry, this is, it's too much for me. Okay. Where are we? Verse 4. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarene. He even tried to profane the temple But we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in this charge. See, the Jews joined in the charge. That's why I think he's a Gentile. The Jews joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Okay, yep, we love you. We love the Romans. We're also happy this guy has developed a cult, and he is destroying our nation. And he's profaned the temple. He brought in a Gentile, which he didn't do. And he's speaking against our law. He speaks against our people. He's causing riots. Right? I mean, we would be peace-loving citizens in love with Rome and in love with each other if it weren't for Paul. It's all his fault. Right? Now, how many of you have a New American Standard Bible? Just raise your hand. Okay, you're reading a New American Standard Bible. Did I skip one of your verses if you were following along? Okay, I did skip one of your verses. Okay, now how many of you have the English Standard Version? Raise your hand. Okay. All right. Now here's the reason why I'm asking. English Standard Version goes from verse 6 to verse 8. 
you got gypped, and you better return that Bible. <laughs> or get like a refund of what, what's a verse cost? Chris, what does a verse cost? 17 cents probably, right? Now, why does the New American Standard have verse 7, and English Standard Verse does not have a verse 7? They dumped it all together. The reason why is this. You'll notice if you have a verse 7 in your Bible, it's probably in brackets or parentheses. It's because it wasn't in the older manuscripts. You know, as, as they collect the Bible, they, they, as, they, as they kind of translated the Bible, they, they, they're translated off of multiple manuscripts. And every time archaeologists dig and find older manuscripts, you, you get a chance to go back and, and clean up and say, okay, the older the manuscript, the more accurate it is. And oftentimes in translation process, words are added because... Cultures change, language changes, and sometimes you have to add certain things in to have it make sense. And so older manu- or younger manuscripts sometimes have more descriptions in them. And occasionally you find an extra verse here and there, and, uh, and verse 7 is one of them. So the King James, when they were originally translating this into English, they had manuscripts that included verse 7, and so they put verse 7 in there. And for years we had verse 7 until roughly the early 1900s when we found older manuscripts and we said, oh, verse 7 probably wasn't there. And so we can't renumber the whole book of Acts. We'll just kind of drop it out, put a little footnote in and say, this verse probably wasn't in the original manuscript. Now the verse itself just says, but Lysias the commander came along and with much violence took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. It just described what happened in the story not adding any truth, not taking away any truth. It's just unpacking the story. Somebody added a few things in there to explain it, probably in a translation process, and, uh, and it just got carried over into English. So that happens from time to time. The English Standard Version people, whenever there's those kind of verse issues, they're different than the New American Standard. New American Standard will just put it in parentheses and keep it in the text. English Standard just drops it out altogether. So from time to time, you're missing a verse, and, uh, and you should have a footnote in there. So that's why there's, I skipped over that verse. Okay, so now, let's keep rolling here. Look at verse 10. Notice what happens. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, remember the church is called the way, so according to Christianity is how we would say it today, according to the way, which they call a sect, he's saying it's not. It's what the Bible teaches, okay? It's not a sect. I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. I've not violated the law, right? You can see his point. I was there 12 12 days ago I was there. Was I leading any groups? Was I leading any riots? No, I was in the temple. I was actually partaking of an Azurite vow when they arrested me. I was following the law. The only issue on the table is that I believe that there's a resurrection and that Jesus rose from the dead. This is the issue on the table. I believe what the way teaches. That's what he's saying. When he brings in the way, he's bringing in the message of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. And so my conscience is clear. I have not violated God's law. This is an issue of the law of God. I haven't violated it. That's what he's saying. We're not a sect of Judaism. We are in accordance with the scriptures. This is pure Judaism, I think Paul would say. This is it. Now, notice what happens. Verse 17. Now, after several years, I came, Paul keeps going, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and present an offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia, and then Paul adds this, they ought to be here before you. (laughs) They made the accusation, but they're not here. Uh, They ought to be here before you and to make an accusation. Should they have anything against me? Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoings they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, 
It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you today. He keeps bringing it back to that. This is the issue on the table. I have a clear conscience. These guys from Asia accuse me of something. They should be here. This whole thing's crazy. It's a kangaroo court. Come on, guys. Get with the program. Verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, he understands the church. He put them off, saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. We're going to find out he has other motives, by the way. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, would have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. You know, the trial in court, uh, when you're in prison in that day, they, there wasn't a court system that cared for you and fed you. Your family had to feed you. If no one came to feed you, you would die of starvation in prison. They would drop you off in the dungeon somewhere, and if somebody didn't care for you, you were on your own. But in this case, what he's saying is, listen, I'm going to put him under house arrest. He's not a threat. We're going to let him move around the palace, and we're going to allow his friends to come, and it's going to be great. He'll, it, you know, we're just going to figure this out. We know this is a Jewish issue. And, uh, but they're, they're still not acting. He's still being a man without courage because they don't know what to do. They don't want to get the Jews mad, but they don't want to violate Paul's rights. They're in a catch-22. If they do what's right for Paul, the Jews will riot, and they'll all die. You know, Felix will lose his head. If he does what's right for the Jews, he does Paul wrong. And Felix will lose his head. What does he do? Well, if you're in a situation where in either way you could die, rule of thumb, do nothing. Right? <laughs> just, just kick the can down the road. Okay, well, so Centurion's kicking it to Felix. Felix is kicking it back to the Tribune leader and the Centurion, right? They're just kicking this can. <laughs> Kicking it back and forth. Well, Paul is in what? Under house arrest. And whenever you hear about the history of Paul, this is the time when he's under house arrest. He's writing letters. He's writing to the Ephesians here. He's writing his prison epistles here. This is what's going on at this point. Church is being built up. Now, notice 24. This is pretty amazing. After some days, Felix came down with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul. And heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And at that time, he had hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Okay, so what's going on here? Guy and his wife comes. His wife is interested. Obviously, he's talking about this at home. I want to meet Paul. So they go and they meet. What happens? Paul gets to talk about faith in the Messiah with a Roman governor. And he has the space and the time and his wife. And notice the three things they talk about. Righteousness. How is a person made right before God? Self-control. How do we overcome the sins of the flesh? In the coming judgment, what happens when you die? Felix doesn't like it, and he gets out of there, but he keeps calling Paul back, not because he's interested in the gospel, but because he's hoping Paul will toss a little money his way, and then all of a sudden, all this will just go away. Paul is one bribe away from freedom. One bribe away. All he's got to do is write a letter, get a note out. Timothy, come here, get a collection from the church. We're going to Thessalonica. They like me there. And uh, get a collection. We'll make a donation to the Roman government. Right? Pay a little extra taxes. And we'll get out of this mess. But he won't. He won't do it. And all that happens is that Felix keeps him in prison. And he goes all the way through even into the next governor's reign. And he's still left in prison. No one wants to do anything. They want to keep the Jews happy. Okay. So, this is an interesting account. And I want to make two observations about God, and I want to make two observations about Paul as we close. Two observations about God, two observations about Paul. First observation about God from this text is that God uses the mess. God uses the mess. Our plan involves order and things running smoothly. God's plan oftentimes has chaos 
connected to. But he uses it. He's using, he's using the anger of the Jews to keep Paul in prison. He's using the lack of courage of the Romans to keep Paul there because God wants Paul to keep moving up the chain and preaching the gospel to these leaders directly face to face. And because it's such a weird situation and involves personal involvement with these leaders and Paul gets a chance to do what no one else would be able to do. There's not one Jew, there's not one Christian that could, could sit and speak for hours with Felix unless they were in this situation. God uses the mess. Second observation, God is at work in the chaos. Same thing as the first point, but I want to make this, uh, just say it from a different angle. God's at work in the chaos. And the reason why I want to say this is that for me, my flesh thinks that when the chaos happens, God has left me or God has abandoned me or that God isn't there anymore. So everything kind of goes crazy and you go, God, why did you do this? As if God's plan has to work orderly in my orderly dream life. And I want to just say to you that when the chaos happens, I don't think God is going, yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't see that one coming. It's more saying, no, do you realize, I actually, this is actually the field I play in. I know the world's covered in sin, and guess what? I'm in complete control, and I can use all of it to carry out my purposes in your life. God is at work in the chaos. We've, the chaos occurs when it occurs this week. The thought in our brain should not be, God, why have you left me? It's more or less saying, okay, God, how are you going to use this? How are you going to use it? God's at work in the chaos. Two observations about Paul now that I want to make. The first one, I don't, you know, I see this as only by the way the text played out. Paul did believe that God was using this moment. I think when God spoke courage to Paul, he believed it. I really do believe that. Now you say, why? Well, that leads to my second observation about Paul. Paul was faithful with the gospel when the doors opened. If Paul's thought was that the best way for me to preach to the Romans was through an orderly process, he would have flicked a little money to Felix and gotten out of that mess. Right? I mean, if it's, if it, if it's just $1,000 that, that cures the problem, then by all means, get $1,000. Get back to the orderly path. But if you really do believe, no, God is going to use this mess, then when the doors open, Paul isn't using that time to try to convince Felix to get him out of jail. Paul's using that time to try to tell him, I want to tell you what it means to have faith in Jesus. I want to tell you how you can be righteous. I want to tell you about the Holy Spirit and how he brings fruit and control in your life. And I want to tell you how you can be ready for the day of judgment. And I would say this, I'm not ready for the gospel when gospel moments open up, when I am consumed with chaos. When chaos owns my life, I do not share the gospel. I can just, I'm just telling, that's what, that's what happens to me. When I start thinking God only works in the orderly, chaos is thrown off my order, then I get self-consumed with it. And Heather can testify, when I get self-consumed with it, the last thing I'm thinking about is God. And the only thing I'm thinking about is, how do I get back to order? Unless I tell myself, God's at work in the mess. God's at work in the mess. And as we had a few trials these past week with our house, I keep telling, God's at work in the mess. God's at work in the mess. I believe he's at work in the mess. i got to preach this. I better believe it. Okay? Because God's at work in the mess. He's at work there. I believe it. You have to believe it. And I believe that because Paul believed it, when the gospel doors opened, he was ready. He was ready because he believed it. So, I've gone way over here. So my challenge for us today, you know, we think about this. Let's not, we're joining in the work of the expansion of the gospel. Acts is not the end of the expansion of the gospel. It's, it's, it's the first chapter of it. And it goes on till the end of the age. And so my challenge for us, if we're going to be participants in that gospel, is to remember God uses the mess. He's at work in the chaos. And when the mess and the chaos comes, that, that my response is to be, God, I believe you're at work. It, this chaos is not a sign that you've left me. It's a sign that you're at work. I believe it. So let me be faithful. God, grant me faithfulness in the midst of the chaos. Why don't we pray to that end right now? God, every single one of us in this room 
testifies to this. Because we live in a sinful world. There's not one person I know. I don't look out and see people whose lives are better than mine. We all live in a fallen world with a decaying body around fallen people in a world where we contend with sin. We contend with a world itself that is longing, creation itself longing for redemption. We live with this, and yet you're at work, God. We have to believe it. We have to believe it, God. I believe there aren't plan Bs with you. These are plan A situations. Help us to remember, as you used the anger of the Jews, you used the, the cowardice of the Roman government to move Paul through to get to Rome itself and to get into a place no one could ever get into. I believe you'll use the chaos and the messes to move us into the positions so help us, God, first, we don't like the mess and the chaos. We like to control things. We like everything under our order. And, and, and we set that up as an idol, God, believing that our control is more powerful than yours. So God, help us to relinquish that. And as we stand with only faith, I pray that we wouldn't respond to fear, but we would take courage. You're at work in the mess. You use the chaos. You're going to position us to be faithful, to, to work and to serve you in the midst of this world. God, help our minds to be enraptured by this so that we can endure until the end of the age. In Christ's name. Thank you for joining us at Kishwaukee Bible Church. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H, bible.org.